In the first century letter to the church in Rome, uh, there was this letter written called Romans and written by the Apostle Paul uh, and is without a doubt the fullest understanding of Christian doctrine written by an apostle while God was establishing the church. A few things should capture our attention about that letter to the Romans. First, it has traditionally been placed as the first epistle or the letter, right, that is behind the historical narratives of the gospel and acts, and it is uh, good for us to pause and ask the question, why would the church traditionally place it there? Well, quite simply, the answer is that Romans is unique in Paul's letters and that it had not yet, he had not yet visited the Roman church where he had been and, uh, and shared the gospel and the good news of salvation from God's coming wrath on sinners to churches like Corinth and, and those in the region of Galatia and Ephesus, Philippi, Thessalonica, and Crete. To our knowledge, there had not yet been an apostolic teaching that had gone to Rome. So when the apostle was writing to the other churches, he had uh, already been to those locations, and he had shared the good news of salvation of the gospel. And in those letters, he was writing them, right, to better help them understand the unique situations that had risen up in their local church. And nearly every one of those letters, if you're familiar and if you read and, and have paid attention, contains warnings about messengers from Satan who were trying to undo the apostolic witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was because of that satanic plucking up of the seeds that the apostles were planting that the good news, uh, and, and Paul would remind them in the Corinthian church that he was not just speaking words of wisdom to them, but that he had done the miracles, the signs of an apostle among them. And it was those signs that the apostles did that set their message apart from the false teachers. And although... God had uniquely endowed the apostles with Holy Spirit power to authenticate their message of salvation, they still had the commission to go. They still had the commission to preach the gospel. They still had the commission to make disciples. And in Paul's dedication to doing so, he wrote the church in Rome to inform them of the content of the gospel. And that's what I'm getting at here this morning is as, as the apostle is writing forward, he has not yet been there where he had been to the others. And, and we just kind of put pieces and parts together of the different things that are going on. And we can, we, can, we can, like a puzzle, put the gospel together in the other epistles. He writes Romans, right, and, and starts from the very beginning and begins to define the gospel. We get to Romans 10, he's wrapping up somewhat to and a, a crescendo, and he writes this in verses 8 through 15 concerning the gospel, the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, what a beautiful sentence. Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is the Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Are these wondrous words, saints? 
How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. So beloved, the letter to the Romans is unique in that Paul, not having been to Rome yet, wrote to them not the good news that he had already taught them, but rather to declare the good news as it is being taught even today. Beloved, we, just like the early church in Rome, Rome must preach the gospel. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring it. Amen? How beautiful. You are visiting with us this morning. We have, as a church, been harmonizing the four gospels. We've been preaching our way through the life of Christ. We are in a sub-series titled The Galilean Light, and last week we studied the first miracles done by Jesus recorded in the, in the, in, uh, the Gospel of Luke. And those miracles, you'll remember, are the cast, were the casting out of a demon who was attending a public worship service of all places, and the subsequent healings, remember, of Peter's mother-in-law and many others on the Sabbath day and evening. Both the Gospels of Luke and Mark record that any who were sick with various diseases brought them to Jesus, remember, and laying his hands on each one of them, he was healing them. We might take away from, from that instance that, that uh, God, through Luke, is setting up this example, this reality that Jesus has come, right, and that he has the authority to tell this new message of this new covenant, of this new birth that Israel was not used to hearing, right? And then he authenticated it by taking power over or having power over Satan and his demons, right? And healing the effects of sin in the world. That's what's going on. That's the picture. We could honestly, in many ways, we could stop in the Gospels and just say, that is what Christ is doing. He is preaching the gospel and God through the, the miraculous power that he is allowed to move through in and through Christ is saying, I am undoing the effects of sin. I'm undoing it. Today our text picks up right where we left off in Capernaum. As a matter of fact, our verses take place just a couple of hours after the healings. And they answer the question, what is more important, a popular healing ministry or the preaching of the gospel? Both gospels of Mark and Luke record this part of history of the life of Christ, and it is often referred to as the first missionary journey through Galilee. Today we'll focus our attention on Mark 1, verses 35 through 39, and we'll consider how the gospel takes priority. Amen? So move your way there to Mark 1, uh, 35 through 39. Again, Luke covers this, and, and uh, there's a little added extra information we'll get into as we, as we hop through this text. Let's take a look there at the situation that Jesus finds himself in. By way of getting a running start, right after casting out the demon in the synagogue on the Sabbath, Mark 1, verses 30 through 34 records this, Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. And verse 32 says, When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. 
and the whole city had gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. Now we've got our start. The context is set. And I want us to pause here for just a moment and realize that this is a small town with less than 10,000 people in it, Capernaum is. And word of these miraculous events was no doubt spreading like wildfire. And if you've ever lived in a small town, you know that everybody knows everything about everything that is going on in a small town. Who here has ever lived in a town with like 5,000 people or less? Right? Don't you just wish you didn't know what was going on in everybody's life? Or the longer you live there and stay there, the more you wish that you didn't know, right? You're just like, please stop talking. <laughs> well, you can imagine, right? For just a moment to put yourself in, in, in their seat. They've already some months earlier heard of the, the nobleman's son who is, who is going to die, likely of the same disease that Peter's mother-in-law has here, right? He's, got, he's running some kind of high fever. He's sick. He's ill from John chapter 4. And, and Jesus is up in Cana, remember? He has just moved his way back into Galilee, and, and he just says the word. And the man's son is healed down in Capernaum. So word is spreading. Now he's here. He's moved his family to Capernaum. He's, he's, he's showed up at the synagogue, right? There's a man in there. I, I, I don't think he's googly-eyed by any stretch of the imagination. I, I think he probably comes to synagogue every week, and he's demon-possessed, and Jesus casts out that demon publicly. Imagine what's going on in the minds, in the amount of information that is spreading like wildfire in this little town as people run from door to door talking about all that's going on in the, in the small town of Capernaum. We can imagine, can we not, that people heard about that mercy being poured out on all who were sick. They were likely running. They were telling everyone uh, who uh, had everything from a hangnail to a sore spot like I have in my hip right now, uh, a digestive issue, malaria, which is likely what was uh, Peter's mother-in-law had, or a terminal illness that Jesus was there and that he was going to heal them all. And he was. And the Gospel of Luke says, that he laid his hands on each one of them, and that evening, every one of them was healed. Now, this moment is every prosperity gospel church's dream. Jesus shows up, and he makes people's physical lives better. And as we'll see here, Jesus, although moved with compassion for the people's poor health, is going to be more concerned about others' eternal well-being, of these eternal well-being. The people of Capernaum had heard of the miracle done for the nobleman's son in John 4. They had heard of the good news of eternal salvation preached at the synagogue, and now his preaching had been authenticated by the miracle-working power over Satan and the sin-cursed world. And after a long night of laying hands on and healing each sick person, Mark uh, says there in verse 35, in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Maybe we can imagine, and, and I think it's good, especially if you, I don't know, uh, uh, if you ever have a, 
a desire to follow Jesus into a full-time type of ministry, but I think these are good verses to just pause and begin to realize that ministry is is not the kind of place where you show up on Monday morning at somewhere around 8 and punch in your time card and, and you stand at the time card machine at, at somewhere around 3.30 waiting to drop it in. It's tiring. It's life-consuming. It's never-ending. <laughs> it goes on and on. And as you move into pastoral ministry in today's age, I, I reach for my phone. It's down there. I, 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 I put my telephone on on. on airplane mode every Sunday morning because I know the wildest stuff will come in. You're always available. Text messages at all different times of the night. Phone calls at all different times of the night. Then you get up and you call back and you pray. And you don't run into the church building, right, and clock in. Ministry doesn't work that way. Following Jesus is, comes with long days and long nights, and a lot of work. I want us to lean in here and see Jesus for a moment for who he is. I I think too often, dear friends, we are just like the people to whom Jesus is trying to preach to. And what do I mean by that? What I mean is that we so often see the glory of the miracles uh, we, we focus on all the healings. We focus on the demons being cast out. We focus on the people being raised from the dead. And we tend to forget that Jesus' message of the new covenant is what he was there to teach. And we tend very quickly to forget the weakness of his own humanity, the weaknesses that he experienced, the tiredness that he would have experienced from from starting early in the morning, preaching uh, in the synagogue, uh, going and having lunch and raising somebody from the dead and then working all night long as the entire town, Mark says, showed up. And, and Luke says that he laid his hands on each and every one of them. Beloved, he's tired. He's tired. He doesn't have whatever that fancy fuel you put in those fancy cars in where he just hits a button and off he goes, right? He's a human being. Hebrews 4.15 reminds us that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. And it's this verse that causes me to pause and ask why it is that Jesus was up so early in the morning while it was still dark. Wouldn't we think that he'd just be exhausted from a full day's ministry? I hope that maybe you have worked hard or been in a really intense situation, and and if you have, uh, no doubt you have gone to bed because you know it's time to go to bed, but your mind is reeling with the events of the day. You can't just shut it off like a switch. We worry about things, don't we? We think about things. We wish we would have said things that we didn't say. We, we were exhausted to beyond the point of just falling to sleep so often. Maybe Christ was like you and I, who after a long and stressful day was laying in his bed, restless and unable to sleep. Maybe his mind was reeling about all that God had sent him, uh, him to do. Was he tempted to take all the praise and build a megachurch healing ministry at Capernaum? And he couldn't sleep. 
Was he tempted like you and me to worry about what people were saying about him or what the religious authorities would do in the background to, to maybe put him to an early death or whether all that he was doing was even pleasing to God? Was he tempted and concerned about what he was doing? Was he concerned? Was he tempted to, to, to be anxious about how knowing likely after all this miraculous event that, that people would just show up the next day needing more and more and more and more of his time? Maybe that's why he was awake. Maybe that's why he couldn't sleep. Beloved, let's not forget Christ's humanity. Our text says that he got up and left the house to a secluded, a secluded place and he was praying. And this is one of three times in Mark's gospel where the intensity of the previous events appears to drive Jesus into seclusion and prayer. The next incident will be after the feeding of 5,000 in Mark 6.46. And if you're a student of, uh, of that long narrative in John chapter Six, you'll, you'll know that those crowds, right, are, are trying to take him and they say, this is the prophet, right? This is the king and, and, and all of the, of the people are trying to force their will upon Jesus, right? And he ends up needing to get to a secluded place to pray. And then at the garden at Gethsemane, in Mark 14, verses 32 through 39, the stresses, the pressures of life, uh, in Jesus' humanity are, are causing him to, to sweat as though great drops of blood. Mark records that he gets in that place to pray. Jesus needed to pray, commune, and get direction from the Father. And it's a stark reminder that if Jesus, being all that he was with no indwelling sin, uh, operating in the fullness and the power of the Holy Spirit, needed to get away and pull himself out of the intensity of life and, and find a secluded place to pray that you and I probably ought to do the same. Amen? What do you think? You and I need to, to get to Christ. We need to get on our knees. We need to find a place. We need to separate ourselves and begin to pray and, and, and re-identify uh, our, our own identity in, in the fact that we are not called to come and do whatever we want to do in this life, but to do the will of the Father like Jesus. Jesus needed to pray in his humanity. He needed to commune with God in his humanity. He needed to get direction from the Father and it's a stark reminder that we are like that too. Jesus did not have total knowledge of all things all the time while he was in his human state. If he did, he certainly would not have needed to pray. He had to seek the Father's will. Beloved, he had to pray. The Apostle John really highlights the humanity of Christ. I appreciate it so much when he records Jesus as saying in John 5.19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing or whatever the Father does, these things the Son 
also does in like manner. John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own initiative. John 6.38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 8.28, I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. John 12.49, for I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. John 14, 10, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. But beloved, we don't know the exact feelings that Jesus was experiencing after that long day and night of ministry, but we know that he was tempted in every way like you and me, and like you and me, he needed to pray. He needed to pray. Whatever was going on in his mind likely caused him to be tempted to do what you and I do when our minds are busy, right? <laughs> and tempted with the potentials of life. As humans, we get confused and restless, do we not? People we trust do something we no longer trust. We get restless in not knowing how to predict the next event so we can try to have some kind of rest or, or peace. And, and when we feel like that, we need to find a secluded place and pray, not our will, but the Father's be done. As humans, we get discouraged by our circumstances. And when we do, we need to find a secluded place and pray, not our will, but the Father's be done. As humans, we get worried. And when we do, we need to find a secluded place and pray, not our will, but the Father's be done. As humans, we face big decisions. And when we do, we need to find a secluded place and pray, not our will, but the Father's be done. What is it about us? <laughs> In the same moment, we can say, we need to do the Father's will at the same time on the other side of us. We're, 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 we're so enamored with doing the things that we want to do that we get blinded to the things that God has called us to do. Dear friends, as humans, we are not omniscient. We do not have complete and perfect knowledge. We, like the eternal Christ during his humanity, must rely on the revealed word of God and the promise, the promise and the prompting of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The longer I pastor and the longer that I lived, quite honestly, as I, as I even counsel myself <laughs> through issues of life, as you hear a lot of strange things as a pastor. God has called me to leave the church. God has called me to leave my wife. God has called me to leave my husband. And God, God has done a lot of different things uh, that I hear that are so opposite of what the Word of God reveals. And sometimes we use going to the Lord in prayer as our, as, 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 as our somehow God card excuse. Well, I heard this from the Lord. Listen, beloved, I, I love you and I want you to have a deep, abiding, personal relationship with the Lord. But the Lord will never tell you what he has already told you not to do in his word. And if he does, you're likely, if you end up in my office going to hear me say something very similar to that. I don't know what God you heard, but it's not this one. Amen? We have to pray to know the Word of God. We have to 
seek the Word of God for understanding in the things that we do in life as, as the stresses and the pressures of life come upon us. We've got to turn to the Word. We've got to turn to the Lord and the Holy Spirit in our lives. When the going gets tough, we must find those secluded places to concentrate and pray that the Father would reveal His will to us. And that, listen here, that we would have the courage to walk in it. How many of you know when you're in those situations, everything in the natural is telling you to go left, but you can read so clearly in your scripture on the right, don't do that. (laughs) You've experienced that. Everything is screaming at you. No, this is the right decision. It's where our minds got to go back to to Proverbs 3, right? 5 and and 6 and 7 and 8 there, right? Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways, acknowledge Him, right? That He might make your path straight. We've looked at the situation to find that long... Uh, a long night of ministry, and after that long night of ministry, Jesus went to a secluded place to pray. It brings us to the complication. The temporal demands of people's physical needs could have thwarted Christ from his real purpose, which was to come and preach eternal salvation, that is, to preach the gospel. Notice in verses 36 and 37 that the physical needs of the people at Capernaum could have consumed Christ's time and energy. The Gospel of Luke specifically records that in the morning the crowds were searching for Jesus. And Mark records in verse 36 that Simon and his companions, those are likely in the context there, Andrew, James, and John, searched for him. It's kind of an interesting Greek word that is behind our English word search there, and it doesn't translate real well because it would take too many words to get across the idea. The idea is they are hunting him down. They're hunting him down. It's frantic. The the idea is like, where in the world did this guy go? If I can paint the picture, maybe what's happened, right, is the the sun's coming up, you've eaten a little fish, and and, and the town is stirring, right, and the whole town was at the door last night, and all of a sudden, these guys are in their home there of, of Peter, and the door starts knocking, and the, and the noise is bustling, and, and people are hollering, where is Jesus? And they're like, we don't know. <laughs> and so they're frantically searching, they're hunting for him. Verse 37 says, they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And Luke's gospel says that the crowds came to him, and they tried to keep him from going away from them. And beloved, herein lies the greater pattern that we find in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When Jesus, moved with compassion, pours out mercy on those with physical needs, the response of our human nature shows up. It is the interesting thing, isn't it? That the flesh and its desires are an unquenchable fire. They're an unquenchable fire. Sometimes I I wonder why it is that that playing things like the lottery are so exciting for people, right? Because the idea is, well, if I could just win the lottery, right, I, I, I could fix all of my problems and pay for my parents' house and, and have some security. And then somewhere in there you might say, well, we might support a missionary or, or do something more at the church, right? And where our treasure is, uh, there our heart will be. And 
I've often told, I had a friend, a, a more aged friend a number of years ago that was always playing the lottery, always excited, always thought he would win. And he rarely served in the church, if ever, or did anything. And he would say, well, if I won the lottery, Pastor, I would do all this. And I would always just sit there and think, wow, what, what a sad thing. If you really cared about that, you'd be doing it now. You'd be doing it now. Where your treasure is, there your heart is. What you do is who you are. Where we spend our time, where we spend our money is a reflection that God has given us to look at, and the flesh is an insatiable desire. It's insatiable. You cannot put it out. If you've lived long enough, you will have watched celebrities like Elvis, Johnny Cash, Kurt Cobain, many popular preachers, and countless others who have, uh, uh, could have had anything their human hearts desired destroy their lives. Their fame, their fame was worldwide. Effectively, they were uh, household names. And having all the fame and all the money in the world did not quench the fire of finding purpose in their lives. Many of them would bring an end to their own lives. For some reason, we just buy into this idea. If we could just get what our natural flesh wants, that we'll be fulfilled. All will be well. Well, but it's not true. Physical well-being in this life cannot fill the hole that is left by our sinful nature passed on from us or to us through Adam. Our text does not tell us exactly why the people tried to keep Jesus from going away from them, but I can guarantee you that their core uh, motive was an insatiable desire to get what they wanted from God. They were seeking to fill what they could not obtain on their own. And we, even as Christians born again by the Holy Spirit, tend to fall into the same trap, don't we? And maybe we think we fall into that trap because we're so far removed from Christ. Yet, one of the earliest, earliest epistles in your New Testament is the one of James. And James writes, James, the half-brother of Jesus, writes this to the very early church and those first century Christians. And he says this in chapter 4, verses 2 through 3, You lust and do not have. So you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you don't ask. You ask and do not receive. Why? Because you ask with wrong motives. So that you may spend it where? On your pleasures. Beloved, this is a tough word of love to the early church from James. It points out the nature of sinful humanity and the unquenchable desires and is why we refuse to preach here at Capital City Church that Jesus will make your physical life better. Jesus clearly taught that in this life we'll have trouble, but to take heart, right, that, that this life is not what we should put our hope in, right? It's the one to come. It's the world to come. It's the redemption to come. It's the passing away of this broken body to come. It's the reestablishment of the new heavens and the new earth to come where we'll spend eternity with a perfect body serving the Lord Jesus Christ together to come. Don't put your hope in the things of this world, Jesus is going to say. It's destined to burn. So it is, beloved Andrew, Peter, James, and John found Jesus 
And verse 38 says, He said to them, Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also. For that is what I came for. You see the, you see the context? Don't lose it. All the miracles, all the making of life better, all of the demons being cast out, right? All of the desire for more of that sitting on, on one hand and yet on the other, Christ goes and he spends time and he secludes himself and begins to pray and ask, Father, what am I supposed to be doing? Do I set up the first megachurch of Capernaum? Nope. It's get out. Were there legitimate needs likely left in Capernaum? You bet there were. Were there poor people left in Capernaum? Yes, you bet there were. Were there people who were sick and needed heal left in Capernaum that maybe didn't have somebody to drag them to Jesus that night? You bet there were. But his purpose was to preach the gospel. See, beloved, in as much as we get enamored by the miracles of Jesus, they were not meant for us to dwell upon. The miracles were done to authenticate the good news or the gospel of the new covenant which leads to eternal life. Eternal life. Don't put your hope in this life. The Apostle Paul picks up on Jesus' purpose for coming in that letter to the Romans that we stated and started this sermon with. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul wrote in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You see, dear friends, the miracles that Jesus did and that have been historically recorded should in fact stick out in our minds. Not so we can just say that Jesus was a miracle worker. He certainly was. But the miracles were meant to point us, right? Like a sign points you down the road. Get to the important thing. You need eternal life. Where people in the first century understood the concepts of having to pay God through sacrifice for their sins, it is lost on Americans who by and large think that we are mostly good people. Americans tend to think that God is somewhere in the heavens weighing out the difference, like on some kind of grand scale for each one of our lives, right? The good deeds on one side and the bad ones on the other, and that our good ones will outweigh the bad, and and, and that's going to be our pathway to heaven. Let me boldly tell you that that thought is a lie from the pit of hell. Jesus said that unless your life is as perfectly holy as God himself, You and I will not enter the eternal kingdom of God. Let me say that in a different way. In order to enter eternity with God, your life must be perfect, as God himself's life is perfect. Now, that's bad news. That's bad news for you, and that's bad news for me. If you are sitting out there today and you're thinking, man, the scales of my life, you know, I've never really killed anybody. (laughs) I've never really done anything too wrong, you know. The other day I shoveled my neighbor's walks, and you can say that in June in Wyoming, right? So I've done all these good things. Surely the Lord will look at that goodness. And and the good stuff, it's just going to outweigh all the bad stuff. We don't understand sacrifice. We don't understand that there needs to be a death for life. Friends, It is bad news, the reality that Jesus would say in 
in that Sermon on the Mount that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, unless you are perfect like God himself is perfect, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that is bad news that we need to pay attention to. Here comes the good news of the gospel that Jesus preached in Israel and Paul preached to the world. Remember in Romans chapter 10 that we we read earlier, verses 9 through 11, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. Remember what I just said? Lest your righteousness surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees. And what does the scripture say here? With the heart, a person believes, resulting in what? Righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Friends, have you confessed your sin and made Jesus your master? Have you believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead? Settle it today. Settle it right now. Cry out for mercy. God absolutely has to have perfection. The scales of life will not come out in your favor. Christ died on your behalf. He lived a perfect life on your behalf. He took the punishment of sin on your behalf. Why? Because he knew there is no way your righteousness could pay the price. Cry out to God for salvation. Let's turn back to it, beloved. Jesus did not want people to be enamored with his miracles, to deliver them from their temporal circumstances. He wanted eternal salvation to be preached and taught in all of the cities in Galilee. The miracles, remember, pointed to the message of eternal salvation. So verse 38 says, Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. And he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, verse 39, preaching and casting out demons. That's all we get of the whole tour through all of the cities in Galilee. This is it. Your one verse. Preaching and casting out demons. Preaching and casting out demons. Preaching the gospel of the kingdom and casting out demons to prove that he had the authority to say it. Preaching the gospel. Preaching the good news and casting out demons so that you would know that you could believe this ridiculous message that all you had to do was put your faith in Christ. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Luke recorded Jesus extending the mission of preaching the gospel from Israel to the nations. Speaking to the apostles, he, he said, You shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in Ju- all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. To the members of Capital City Church and everyone else in here who is supporting the church, the elders and I are excited to announce that upon the approval of this, uh, this year's upcoming budget, we'll be partnering with, in a small way with Radius International. Radius International is a missions training ministry whose focus is to train missionaries to go into the unreached people groups, the remotest part of the earth. We're excited for the opportunity to come alongside them. You'll know, as I've already mentioned, that, that we've been teaching an evangelism class and, and hoping that you get here and learn just as much as you can as you 
as you learn to outreach, it doesn't mean it's the only way you have to do those things, but certainly we want to keep it on the plate, right, that we might reach the uttermost parts of the world, even Cheyenne, Wyoming, which is certainly included in that command to the apostles. As big of a deal it is for us to to begin to partner with Radius International, it's uh, our own nation right before our eyes is becoming more and more secular. And it is just as overtly critical that each one of us is ready to share the gospel with all of those whom God has put us in contact with. Why do we share the gospel? Why do I bring it up each Sunday at some level or another? Why do we we put it before you? Why do we do evangelism training? Because I'm never going to be the VA uh, in the VA hospital every day like Anthony Smith is. I'm never going to interact with legislators like Nathan Winters will. I'm not going to be in the city offices with, with, with my wife, Valerie. I'm not going to help people with their retirement and plan that stuff like Ben, ben Bowman is. But you can take the gospel, and you can take the gospel, and you can take the gospel to, to Lowe's and, and to all those different places that are represented in here. And, and, and in all doing that, right, corporately, we are reaching the uttermost ends of the earth. Beloved, preach the gospel. Let us remember that Romans 10, 14, and 15 says this, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him who they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Amen? Will you be those people? Your friends is preaching the gospel, taking priority in your life.